to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. Welcome to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. The world is getting crazier every day, my friends. You know, a Harvard math professor named Tom Lehrer once wrote a song that started out, They're rioting in Africa. They're starving in Spain. There's hurricanes in Florida, and Texas needs rain. And the song goes on to list the various catastrophes, natural and otherwise, that are taking place all over the world. The song ends with the words, they're rioting in Africa, there's strife in Iran. What nature doesn't do to us will be done by our fellow man. Interesting, isn't it? That song was written in 1958. And today, 60 years later, it is just as relevant as it was then. That, my friends, is a very sad story. That we have made so little progress towards a more peaceful world. And yet... Here we are. So let's take a look at some of the top stories of the week and see what mayhem is happening around the world and how we are dealing with the crises that are all around us. Let's start with what may be the first story of the week and the one that may really affect the situation in the Middle East. That broke last Thursday. This was the story that the Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, also known as Bibi, was cited for an indictment by the Attorney General of Israel. Six charges were listed, including bribery, fraud, and breach of trust. Those are serious charges for anyone, particularly a head of state. But Israel's situation is a bit more complicated than most. For one thing, Israel has held two national elections during the past year, and neither one of them has resulted in the formation of a new government. It's complicated. In Israel, you don't vote for a candidate, you vote for a party. And there can be as many as 25, 30, even 40 parties in some elections. So no one party wins a majority, ever. Instead, the party that wins a plurality has to make a coalition with other parties to create a majority. And when that happens, the leader of the largest party becomes prime minister. And his party leads the government. That's how it's supposed to work. Only in the last two elections, no one was able to form a new government. Not Netanyahu, and not the next closest party head, Benny Gantz. So there is no new government, and no Knesset, which is what the Israeli parliament is called, and so forth. So now, for the moment, Netanyahu remains acting prime minister. And there is no law that says he has to step down, even if he is indicted. And that's because his situation has never happened in Israel before. And there is no law to cover it. And more than that, the indictment cannot even be filed until a new government is formed and the indictment can be presented to the parliament. And, of course, there is no parliament. Like I said, it's complicated. So let's take a look at the man under indictment. He is being accused of offering political favors for expensive gifts and favorable news coverage, even at the expense of his friends and supporters in the media. On its face, 
His situation would seem to be difficult at best. But Netanyahu is driven to succeed, some would say, at all cost. He is a man who has built his power base around his own hubris. Here is a little-known fact, little-known at least, outside of political Israel. In addition to being prime minister, Netanyahu wears many hats. As of September of this year, he held five cabinet-level posts. In addition to holding the position of prime minister, which would be more than enough for most men, he also named himself Minister of Defense, Minister of Immigration, Foreign Minister, and Minister of Health. These are not just positions in name. As minister, he is the one who is ultimately responsible for the day-to-day performance of these departments. Each ministry has its own office, not always in the same building, and large staffs to carry out the functions of the department. Now, think of that. One man in charge of five different government agencies. It is not beyond the realm of possibility, think of this, that under his guidance, under his divided guidance, the functioning of these departments, all of which have critical roles to play in the lives of the Israeli people, suffered severely. And in the past, it has been worse than this. At the end of 2014, Netanyahu held eight cabinet positions, including finance, justice, environmental protection, education, health, welfare, science, and communications. The number of portfolios that he has held, even as he functioned as prime minister for a decade, may have been a measure of the degree to which he viewed his own competence and self-worth. Or alternatively, his overwhelming need to consolidate his political power and to demonstrate his invincibility. It seems clear that he considers himself indispensable. In 2014, member of Knesset Shelley Yakimovich, who was at the time a member of the Labor Party, criticized Netanyahu for having too many ministries under his control. She said, quote, This situation is not only ridiculous, it is also reckless. The government of Israel is not a political game in Netanyahu's hands or a nice hobby. It is the sovereignty of Israel, the power, that runs our complicated lives. Unquote. She added sardonically that at this pace, Netanyahu might also appoint himself to be Lord of the Rings. You know, I think there's something inherently wrong and even corrupt in a government in which one man holds so much power. The saga of Benjamin Netanyahu is far from over. But when it comes to the indictments, what is very interesting is how closely what is happening in Israel parallels what is happening here in Washington. Both leaders are under duress and are being challenged by the opposition for real or made-up crimes. The main difference is that in Israel, there are actual charges against the Prime Minister. They are well documented, and the evidence is clear. Here in the United States, though, there are no charges, only undocumented opinions, assumptions, allegations, and a lot of finger-pointing, with no proof of any criminal behavior behind them. Assumptions, suggestions, and hearsay. Hardly enough to charge our president with criminal behavior and remove him from office. But Netanyahu's situation is different. 
And as far as how all this affects the region, Iran is already rattling its sabers in the direction of Israel. But Israel's military capability is still strong, and the leadership is still intact with a prime minister and his cabinet. But the winds of war are blowing, even as riots are destabilizing Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, and Iran. And Iran, most of all, is suffering from the American sanctions that have led to massive demonstrations in many of its cities throughout the country. There are reports that the Iranian forces have killed hundreds of their own citizens. Netanyahu, speaking as acting prime minister, said this on Sunday, quote, General McKenzie, commander of the United States Central Command, said that Iran is not only planning another attack against its neighbors, but is attacking its own civilians. In the last weeks, Iran has butchered hundreds of its own citizens. This is a vicious regime that has shown its true colors to the whole world. No one needs further proof that this is the largest terror state in the world. I call to all the world states in order to stabilize the region and the world, join the struggle, and place more pressure on Iran. Support Israel that fights this terror. We have acted, and we will continue to do so." Unquote. Netanyahu is still a statesman, and he is not likely to step down willingly. But the pressure is mounting as more and more politicians, not only in opposing parties but in his own party, ask him to step down. He has asked for immunity from the indictments, but that too is unlikely. I think the politicians in Jerusalem are frankly tired of his arrogance, his need to control everything, and his willingness to bend the rules in order to remain in office. The problem remains, I think, that he really believes that he is the best, the only one who can lead Israel through the coming months and years. In the end, I do believe he'll be forced to step down, and I'm skeptical that whoever replaces him will be as much of a statesman as Bibi has been, and as fearlessly able to steer Israel's ship of state through the murky waters of the growing existential threats and, possibly, war. But having said that, let me add this. This is what a democracy is supposed to do. Change its leaders according to the will of the people, in order to avoid the pitfalls of monarchs and autocrats. Israel has a history of surprising the world with its resilience, its strength, and its ability to overcome the most incredible odds. So with all that's going on politically in Israel, in spite of the lack of a formal government, Netanyahu is still prime minister and still in charge. The rule of law is being maintained, and so is the strength of Israel's security forces and the level of their preparedness. If there is going to be a war on the horizon, Israel will be a force to reckon with, and the democratic process will prevail. And speaking of democracy prevailing, let's take a look at what just happened in Hong Kong. On Sunday, November 24th, the people of Hong Kong went out to the polls to vote. They voted in record numbers. Nearly three million voters went to the polls to vote for their new legislative council. This represents more than twice the number of voters in the last election, which took place in 2016. In that election, 
Fewer than one and a half million voters participated. But on Sunday, the voters overwhelmingly elected 385 pro-democracy candidates from the 452 district council seats. That's 85% of the voter turnout supported the demonstration and democratic Hong Kong. This, my friends, is a mandate of the most dramatic kind. And it began even before the elections. This year, for the first time, there were 4 million people registered to vote. And 390,000 of them were newly registered. In this election, every single seat had at least two candidates vying for it, one pro-communist and one pro-democracy. In the last election, 68 candidates ran unopposed. Unopposed. And now every single seat was contested. The successful candidates who support the government, that is to say the Chinese government, retained only 58 seats. Before the election, they had 300. So that gives you an idea of how powerful this election has been. But what now? Well, the executive director of Hong Kong, China appointed Carrie Lam, after seeing the overwhelming results, released an official statement in which she said, quote, The government respects the election results. There are various analyses and interpretations in the community in relation to the results, and quite a few are of the view that the results reflect the people's dissatisfaction with the current situation and the deep-seated problems in the society. The government will listen to the opinions of the members of the public humbly and seriously reflect." Unquote. Well, that's a mouthful for a Chinese puppet who is the head of the government of Hong Kong. She is like a circus performer, standing astride the backs of two horses with one foot on the back of each. One horse is China and the other is Hong Kong and she has to keep the balance or come crashing down. So far, she's managed to keep the faith with China, but it is clear that she has lost faith with Hong Kong. She has given her message to the people of Hong Kong, presumably with the consent of the Chinese government, whom she must please. And although China must have certainly approved her message, the Chinese government has been silent. The Hong Kong people have not. They want her to be gone. How will the Chinese government react to the overwhelming vote in favor of democracy? The election was a de facto referendum, and the Chinese cannot be happy with the outcome. But their options are limited. They have other considerations beside Hong Kong, not the least of which is the trade deal that they're trying to negotiate with the United States. And all that has to be kept in the balance. They also have the history of Tiananmen Square, which they really do not want to repeat. So what they'll do next is still a question. The elections came just in time. Although the demonstrations were becoming increasingly violent, they hadn't yet erupted into a wholesale insurrection that would have required a harsh Chinese intervention. The election showed that the people of Hong Kong are strong and hold deep convictions about the freedoms which they cherish and how much they are willing to risk 
to take on the Chinese government in order to protect the freedoms and autonomy that they have known all their lives and that they are not willing to sacrifice. The very latest news from Hong Kong is that China has taken steps to try to contain the clear rebellion taking place in Hong Kong. They have set up a crisis command center in a place called Bohania Villa, a heavily fortified property that is located just on the other side of the border with Hong Kong. The Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Hong Kong reaffirmed that China wants to continue the policy of, quote, one nation, two systems, unquote. China is clearly reconnoitering, reassessing its options, and making decisions that will affect both Hong Kong and China for the future. Stay tuned. Okay, now we are going to take a short break so you can hear from the good people at America Out Loud, but we'll be right back with a story about a high school that is trying to smother its students with wokeness and about the wide-awake students who are fighting back. Spreading the out loud truth from sea to shining sea. AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. The goal is to deliver a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world. To unite people from all backgrounds and beliefs in an effort to advance humanity. We are the vision of the voices. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Now I want to take a few minutes to talk about a very controversial issue having to do with the language we speak. In this country, in the United States of America, where freedom of speech is guaranteed by our Constitution, there are still words we can't say, even when we're trying to educate or explain an important concept to our children. Now, there have always been words that have been considered improper for what was called, quote, polite company, unquote, and were only used, well, mostly by men who were considered to be coarse and unmannered. These words were what were sometimes called gutter language and often had to do with bodily functions or had rather nasty sexual connotations. But in an educational setting, in a class studying language, literature, and linguistics, the use of such words might have a place, even though that place may be only momentary in order to make an important point. Recently, there was a teacher in Cane Ridge High School in Antioch, Tennessee, who gave an assignment which included a discussion of a play called Fences. It was a play in two acts by August Wilson. Fences is a play about a black man and his struggle to earn a living and provide for his family in the middle of the 20th century. In 1987, this play won a Pulitzer Prize for drama. The script of the play included what is now commonly known as the N-word several times. Now, the play was the subject of a lesson in this school and a series of homework questions. And the teacher used this word, spelled out in full, 
in quotation marks to define the lesson. And the teacher was summarily placed on leave. But the story didn't stop there. In an interesting turn of events, the students responded to the treatment of their teacher by staging a walkout. They carried signs in support of their teacher and said their teacher was being, quote, persecuted for trying to teach us about the real world, unquote. So listen to the questions that were on the homework assignment. Here they are. Quote, write one page on the term and then the N-word was spelled out in full, in quotation marks, followed by these questions. How is it a racist term? How is it used? Why, if it is such a negative term, does the main character use it? How do you hear it used? How is it both empowering and self-defeating to use it? Those were the questions. They were the questions that the teacher asked the students to consider, to think about, to come up with coherent and intelligent answers. Those are the questions. And here's my question. What exactly do we send our children to school for? Do we send them to be brainwashed, to accept the wokeness of the left, and swallow whole the dangerous hypocrisy that allows our five-year-olds, for example, to be exposed to lessons about alternative sexual identity and how they can choose what gender they want to be in kindergarten, but not be able to use language freely at any age. Do we send them to learn that there is no compromise with the demands of diversity and inclusiveness? and that the Constitution is archaic and racist and homophobic, and so is the Bible, and that religion is obsolete, and that God is superfluous and has no place in our schools, unless you are a Muslim, in which case the rules don't apply, not the same rules. But the Council of Islamic American Relations will swoop in with threats of legal action until every one of their rights under the Constitution as they see them are met? Is that an unequal application of justice, of constitutional law? And are we teaching our children that language must be censored when it offends a member of a minority, even the feelings of one individual? Have any of these bend-over-backwards do-gooders ever listened to rap? Have they ever counted the times that awful N-word is mentioned in rap music? Have they ever listened to young black people talking to each other? and calling each other the N-word? The students at Cane Ridge High School are right. They're in school to learn about the real world. They're in school to learn how to think critically, how to prepare themselves to make good life decisions based on reality, not on someone's crazy ideas about diversity and safe spaces. The reality that the students in that English class at Cane Ridge High School were asked to examine was the reality of racial prejudice and the use of language to keep another human being from reaching his potential because of the color of his skin. But this was too much, it seems, because 
a word that was used, six letters that somehow expressed the terrifying fear that the word on the pages of a book would defile and poison the young minds forever. You know what? The day we stopped requiring our children to memorize poems and dates in history and the Gettysburg Address, the day we stopped teaching them how to diagram a sentence, the day we stopped getting them to read the plays and poetry of William Shakespeare and the novels of Charles Dickens and books like Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird and Mark Twain's Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn, the day we stopped guiding their discussions of complex issues with clarity and insight, that was the day our children became snowflakes, afraid of what they didn't know, and even more afraid to expose themselves to what they didn't know, to learn about what they didn't know. And they turned into the very college students who were afraid when they saw Donald Trump posters on their college campuses during the 2016 election. And they're the same ones who demanded self-segregated safe spaces with other snowflakes who were just like them. They actually returned to the old norms of segregation, the ones that their parents had fought so hard to end. It's pathetic and sad, and it will not only ruin our children, it will ultimately ruin our nation. And that process, my friends, has already begun. Witness AOC and her ridiculous programs to save the world from climate change. We should not be allowing our children to be in schools that dumb them down, that make them conform to a curriculum that impedes their growth and puts political correctness and the false gods of diversity before learning and critical thinking, and the mind-stretching disciplines that are the engines of creation in bright young minds. These young men and women are the ones who will create all the wonders of the coming age, not the snowflakes who are afraid of their own shadows and waste their time in vastly overpriced colleges and universities where they can major in such things as gender, sexuality, and women's studies, or artistic, interpretive, and philosophical inquiry. So getting back to the students at Cambridge High School, this is a really good teacher. This is a teacher who has not forgotten how to teach critical thinking. This is a teacher who respects the students and is willing to go that extra mile to teach them about life in the real world. But this is the same teacher who will now have to undergo sensitivity training by the school system's diversity and equity team. It is shameful. And by the way, you may notice that the teacher is not identified as a man or a woman. In this age of political correctness gone berserk, nowhere in the news stories was his or her gender mentioned. Pathetic. And speaking of the real world, the Iranian government turned off the Internet and all communications throughout the country of Iran last week. In the face of rising demonstrations in cities throughout the country, the Iranian government shut down the communication links between families and essentially shut down commerce 
that depends on the Internet. The new unrest began November 15th, when the Iranian government raised the price of gasoline by at least 50%. We talked about that last week. But now remember, the Iranian people are already suffering under rapidly rising prices on just everything that makes life bearable. Even the basic necessities are prohibitively expensive now. That austerity is now compounded by the United States sanctions that have closed the market for Iranian oil. Iran blames the demonstrations that have spread throughout the country on mercenaries, but it seems to be the Iranian people themselves who have had enough. And in addition to protesting the rise in gasoline prices and the spiraling cost of just about everything that makes living from day to day nearly unbearable, the people are now calling for the removal of their leaders, whom they consider to be corrupt and unaccountable. In the course of the demonstrations, more than a hundred banks and dozens of other buildings have been set on fire. The Iranian authorities have been brutal to the demonstrators and warned that they will be met with what they call severe punishment, including a threat to execute the leaders of what they call the rioters. Reports of the number of people killed by the government in the streets of Iran ranges from an official tally of about 150 to estimates from other sources that list hundreds of dead and thousands of wounded. America has responded to the demonstrations and to the shutting down of the communications quickly and with determination. Washington imposed sanctions on Iran's information minister for his role in what they called wide-scale internal censorship. The United States has sided with the protesters, unlike what President Obama did during the Green Revolution of 2009. Only 10 years ago, a national uprising exploded on the streets of Iran because of what the Iranian people believed was massive and obvious election fraud. But what began as peaceful demonstrations ended in a bloodbath. Unarmed demonstrators, civilians, were beaten and shot in the streets by Iranian security services, including the IRGC, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, the besieged paramilitary units, and plain-clothed paramilitary forces called Labas Shakhsi. Protesters were beaten by the thousands, hundred more were arrested, and dozens were killed by snipers. Many others just disappeared. Some of the accused were forced to confess on television to various crimes against the nation. These included, no doubt under the most extreme pressure, the admission that the Green Movement was a creation of the United States in order to weaken the Islamic State of Iran. And not all detainees made it to trial. Some were tortured to death in Iran's notorious prisons. In short, the revolution was brutally crushed and Obama did nothing. But Donald Trump is a different kind of president. On November 22nd, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo announced on Twitter, quote, The United States is sanctioning the Minister of Information and Communications Technology, Mohammed Jahromi, for helping shut down the Iranian Internet. We will hold members of the Iranian regime accountable for their violent repression of the Iranian people." Unquote. Did Pompeo's action have an effect 
on Iran? Well, I'd say it did. Because the very next day, the internet was magically restored across most of Iran, allowing many users to get back online. And that is an interesting story all in itself. How in the world did Iran turn off internet access to the whole country and then turn it back on so easily and so quickly? That is no small feat in a country of some 80 million people. Adrian Shabazz, who is the research director of Freedom House, which is a pro-democracy group that tracks internet censorship around the world, said this, quote, This is the most wide-scale internet shutdown that we've seen in Iran. It could mean that they are more fearful of their own people and worry that they cannot control the information space amidst these economic protests, unquote. The answer to the question, how did they do it, probably lies in the fact that the Iranian government took over control of Internet access in both public and private sectors in the name of national security. They probably don't have something like a national kill switch that would cut off all Internet access to everyone all at once. So how did they do it and why? Well, they have clearly figured out how to shut down the network. Real-time network data shows that connectivity throughout the country fell by 93% of ordinary levels over a 12-hour period. And this was caused by progressive network disconnections, beginning with Internet access disruptions across multiple large cities, including Tehran, in response to the public protests that have continued throughout the country. This resulted in an almost complete shutdown of Internet and cell phone communications throughout the country. Why did they do it? Well, they had what they considered to be at least two good reasons, in their own minds anyway, for doing it. In the past, it has been demonstrated many times that widespread demonstrations can be coordinated quickly across large areas when their leaders are in touch by cell phone and Internet. Do you remember the cartoon riots that happened in 2005? In September of that year, a Dutch newspaper published some drawings of Mohammed. And several months later, in the course of time, riots erupted that claimed to be in response to that publication. Anyway, the way these riots spread was by leaders in various parts of the country, particularly France, where it was the most violent, communicating and coordinating with each other by cell phone. That was undoubtedly one of the things that the Iranian authorities were most concerned about. The Iranian leadership clearly wanted to stop the demonstrators from communicating with each other in the hopes that this would keep their demonstrations from spreading. And then there was another thing. Iran didn't want the rest of the world to know how bad the situation in Iran really is, how angry the Iranian people are, and to what lengths they will go to express their anger. All good reasons, thought the mullahs, to shut down cell phones and internet service. But they didn't anticipate more sanctions in a situation that is already suffering from the heavy sanctions that have been imposed by the United States. When Mike Pompeo made his announcement, that changed everything. Unlike Obama, this administration will not take Iran's brutality against its own people lightly, and they will not ignore it the way Obama did. Okay, we're going to take another short break, 
but we'll be right back again and we'll start with you just can't make this stuff up hello this is lieutenant randy sutton the host of blue lives radio the voice of american law enforcement i am a 34-year police veteran i am also the founder and ceo of an organization that stands behind injured and disabled law enforcement officers. It is called The Wounded Blue. Our website is thewoundedblue.org. We have produced a film. It is an important film. I urge you to watch it. The film details what happens when a police officer or law enforcement officer is shot or stabbed or beaten or disabled seriously injured in the line of duty. Most people think they are taken care of medically and financially. The reality may be quite different. It is called The Wounded Blue, Service, Sacrifice, Betrayed. The film is available on Amazon, iTunes, and the Microsoft Store. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older, until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multi-nutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa. Award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. As we say, let the silent voices be heard. Shadow Bannon, editing, censorship, blocking, and adherence to political correctness are seen as serious threats to our God-given right of free speech. Suppressing free speech, the very cornerstone of our society, is not in the best interest of our listeners, readers, and those who provide our content. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Well, it's time for another episode of You Just Can't Make This Stuff Up. It's that time of year again. Thanksgiving is here and will soon be gone for another year. And then it's time for Christmas carols and holiday cheer all around, including office parties to celebrate the season. Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, and maybe some others. Every culture has a celebration of lights during the darkest time of the year, so why not celebrate them all? And what would a holiday party be without a secret Santa? If you've never experienced the fun of a secret Santa party, it's a gift-giving event in which everybody brings a gift for someone else. You get the name of someone who's going to be attending the party, and that's the person you bring a gift for. That way, everybody gets a gift. And since usually there is a price limit on how much a gift can cost, no one is theoretically taxed beyond his or her means, and so no one is left out. Everyone gets a present. And in theory, at least, 
A good time is had by all. Well, maybe not everyone. Do you know what the millennials think of Secret Santa? Well, according to several studies that were carried out recently, some of those poor little snowflakes find that Secret Santa parties produce, oh my, anxiety. And some millennials feel triggered by the practice. In fact, recent polls suggest that 35% of millennials want to see Secret Santa banned completely. Honestly, it seems that they feel pressured to spend more money than they can afford on gifts for someone they may hardly even know. And they want to avoid being judged for the gifts they choose and maybe even thought heaven forfend, maybe even thought cheap, cheap. And they report that they feel angry because their low salaries, whatever they are, aren't taken into account. Well, I guess, I guess they never heard of the holiday spirit. It's not the price, but the thought that counts, isn't it? And what about instead of buying a gift, they make one or write a poem or visit stores like Walmart or go to Amazon.com that have a humongous selection of low-priced gifts, really nice ones. That makes you anxious too? Really? Listen, I've been nearly broke more than once in my life, and I had to raise two kids as a single mom in the process. It was tough, but I never missed a birthday or a holiday, even if we were living on hot dogs and pasta. Somehow, you just find a way to make it work. But these millennials were brought up to think they're entitled. I've talked a lot about that on this program, and I confess that I have very little sympathy for them. Because while they grew up learning about diversity and entitlement, they missed the lesson about giving to others who may actually have less than they do. Because you never know, maybe they're just not likely to tell you. So Secret Santa triggers them. And they're so anxious about being thought cheap if they don't spend a lot of money on a gift that they've completely lost sight of the real meaning of the holiday season. So they're ready to spoil it for everyone else. Listen, you snowflakes, it's about giving. So suck it up and join the rest of the human race. You just can't make this stuff up. An interesting article appeared on my phone this week. That's where I get a lot of my news these days, on my cell phone. It may seem pretty ordinary, but if you grew up like I did, with one TV in the house and a phone that was hanging on the wall and you had to dial it with a rotary dial, getting your news on the cell phone is pretty cool. Anyway, this story was stunning and halfway believable. It originally appeared on a foreign news website. It's hard to know how much of it is true, if any of it is true. But it's too good a story to ignore, and it's appeared in several news outlets since it first came out. I won't report on it as news, because it may not be news. It may even be fake news. But it's a possibility, and in the meantime, it's just a story. It appeared on a site called Al-Arabiya English, which is, as the name suggests, an Arabic news outlet which, which publishes in Arabic and English and operates out of Dubai. 
Al-Arabiya reported that, according to sworn testimony heard in a Florida courtroom on October 23rd, U.S. Representative Ilhan Omar is a foreign agent who is on the payroll of the Qatari government. Kuwaiti-born Canadian businessman Alan Bender testified in the October trial of a member of the Qatari royal family. This man is accused of ordering his American bodyguard to murder two people and of holding an American citizen hostage. It isn't clear why Bender's testimony was relevant to the subject of the trial, but he testified that he had met with three Qatari officials, including the secretary to the Qatari Amir for Security Affairs. He said that he had been told that Qatar had, and here's the quote, recruited Ilhan Omar from even way before she thought about becoming a government official. They groomed her and arranged the foundation, the grounds, for her to get into politics way before she even showed interest. They convinced her. Bender said that the three officials tried to convince him to recruit other American politicians to be Qatari intelligence assets, and they told him they already had several politicians on their payroll, including Omar, but that she was the jewel in the crown. He said that she worked for them for cash payments and that she had acquired sensitive information and related to them and through them to Iran. He also said that she was recruiting other politicians to work with them as well. In his testimony, Bender also said that the Qataris told him that, quote, the best thing money can buy are American officials because they are the cheapest of the cheapest costing officials in the world, unquote. Well, that is a dubious compliment. It's not a compliment at all. It's really a huge insult. But if any of our politicians, any of our congressmen, are reporting sensitive information outside of the appropriate classified channels, then there is a great deal to investigate. And frankly, this is a very disturbing story, a scary one, a terrifying one, that the people we send to Congress, that we elect to represent us in government, are sharing our national secrets with foreign governments. We have a lot to worry about. Now, I'm no lawyer, but if all this is true, then Omar is guilty of a lot more than just immigration fraud. And she is fighting back. Her office accused Al-Arabiya English of targeting her with, quote, misinformation and conspiracy theories. They called the story absurd. Does this sound too much like conspiracy theory? It does. But there's an old saying that goes, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean there isn't somebody following you. Here's a woman who has been accused of marrying her brother in order to get him into the United States. She lied to her future constituents when she was running for Congress, telling Jewish residents of her district that she favored a two-state solution in the Israel-Palestine conflict. That was until she didn't, because once she was elected, she supported the single state of Palestine. This is a woman who came to the United States as a refugee at the age of 12, and within a few years turned into a highly literate, sophisticated woman who was able to take Congress by storm. It's possible, but it raises an awful lot of questions.
And here's another thing to consider. Several conservative journalists, including David Steinberg and Gordon Schachtel, have reported that they heard about this and looked into it and frankly don't believe it. I, for one, don't know. She has proven that she can lie. She's dishonest. She has also shown that she does not like this country very much. We don't know what kind of a life she left in Somalia, but we do know what kind of a life she came to. She came to a community of people with whom she was familiar, other people from Somalia, whom America brought over here as refugees. And she was able to fulfill whatever dreams she may have had. And today, she is a congresswoman. And she has a salary of $174,000 a year, plus benefits. And yet, she complains. She thinks Americans are hypocrites. I think the hypocrite is the one she looks at in the mirror every day. Because she has taken everything that America can offer her and made it work for her. And she has benefited herself and her family. And yet, she complains. Elon Omar is the one who told a CARE meeting in Los Angeles about the events of 9-11. She said, some people did something. She neglected to say that the some people were Islamic terrorists and they flew three planes into the World Trade Center and the Pentagon and killed 3,000 people in the process. Some people did something. Indeed. How better to show your contempt for the country that gave you everything that you have today. The story about Omar and the Qataris has already been reported in several news outlets, and it's bound to create waves, at least in the conservative press. The liberal press doesn't seem to want to cover anything that is controversial about Democrats. But that's okay. We'll do the best we can when there's a story to tell. Now, as I said, I don't report this as news because the story may be false, or it may not be. I just tell you the story and you decide. Or let's both wait for due process to take its course. One way or another, it would be nice to know the truth. Well, this week, the highlight of this week, will be Thanksgiving. The history of Thanksgiving is so amazing, and I couldn't possibly tell it all to you right now, but let me pick a few highlights that mean a lot to me anyway. The first Thanksgiving was in November 1621. It wasn't called Thanksgiving, but we do have a record, an account from Pilgrim Chronicler Edward Winslow. He wrote this about that day. Our harvest being gotten in, our governor sent four men on fowling, so that we might, after a special manner, rejoice together after we had gathered the fruits of our labors. They four, in one day, killed as much fowl as with a little help besides served the company almost a week, at which time, amongst other recreations, we exercised our arms. Many of the Indians coming amongst us and amongst the rest their greatest king, Massasoit, with some ninety men, whom for three days we entertained and feasted, and they went out and killed five deer, 
which they brought to the plantation and bestowed on our governor and upon the captain and others. And although it may not be always so plentiful as it was this time with us, yet by the goodness of God we are so far from want that we often wish you partakers of our plenty. Unquote. We don't know exactly what their menu was, but we do know that they were grateful for the bounty of their harvest and their hunting. In 1789, George Washington issued the very first Thanksgiving proclamation. He called on Americans to be grateful for the happy conclusion to the War of Independence and the successful ratification of the United States Constitution. In 1817, New York became the first state to officially adopt an annual Thanksgiving holiday. In 1863, Abraham Lincoln, at the height of the Civil War, made a proclamation asking all Americans to ask God to, quote, commend to his tender care all of those who have become widows, orphans, mourners, or sufferers in the lamentable civil strife and to heal the wounds of the nations. He announced that Thanksgiving would occur every year on the final Thursday in November, and it has been that way except for a short period between 1939 and 1941. Thanksgiving means different things to different people, and to some people it doesn't mean very much. But it means a lot to me. It means more than turkey and cranberry sauce and pumpkin pie. To me, it means memories, wonderful memories. I remember one year, my husband and I drove from New Jersey to Toronto, Canada to spend our Thanksgiving with people I had known since I was a child. And we went there, even though it wasn't their Thanksgiving, but they had made a turkey with chestnut dressing. And the visit that we had was worth everything. My husband is no longer with us, and my friend is no longer with us either. But the memories of that lovely Thanksgiving will stay with me forever. Now, I come from a big family. My mother was one of eight children, and my father had a smaller family. He was one of four children. Not so impressive. But all the children had children. So in addition to aunts and uncles, there were also lots of cousins. But every year on Thanksgiving, we would all get together for a big feast. And I remember those get-togethers also. But it was always a wild time. Cousins rolling on the floor, wrestling. Our parents discussing and arguing and eating and enjoying each other's company. It was wonderful. My family's much smaller now. My parents are gone, and so are my aunts and uncles. And the cousins are all dispersed all around the country. But the memories, they're still with me. And for that, I am very thankful. So this Thanksgiving, I'll be on the farm, enjoying the peace and quiet of rural living, and being thankful for everything that God has given me, that life has given me. This Thanksgiving, 
I'll be taking time out to be thankful, to be grateful for everything that this life has given us. I wish for all of you who are listening today a very happy Thanksgiving, a meaningful Thanksgiving, a Thanksgiving that is full of love and happiness and hope. In the words of Tiny Tim, I know this is the wrong holiday, but still, in the words of Charles Dickens' Tiny Tim, God bless us, everyone. You've been listening to the News Magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this has been The Friedman Report. 